Welcome to Clear as Quantum, a podcast from Equus about quantum science and the exciting technologies that are just around the corner. In this spooky podcast at a distance, we're trying to dust the cobwebs out of the quantum physics realm that's entangling our lives. I'm Lachlan Rogers, I work in New South Wales, and last night I pulled the first all-nighter that I've done in years trying to mark first-year exams. Yikes! Well, I'm Yasmin Svendler, I am based in Brisbane, and I'm still writing my thesis, I don't want to talk about it. (laughs) Equus is a Centre of Excellence for Engineered Quantum Systems. We are funded by the Australian Research Council, and in this podcast series, we are talking with a range of researchers working in universities across Australia. Today, we are going to talk with physicist Jackie Romero. She has a few quite prestigious fellowships under her belt. Uh, Currently, she is a Westpac Fellow, and most recently, she was the recipient of a L'Oreal UNESCO Women in Science Award, which, honestly, it's a talent magnet, and we are just delighted to have her here. So anyway, Jackie heads the QDITS at UQ Lab, which already gives away a bit what we're going to talk about. I believe that QDITS are quantum states that are quite similar to qubits, like a cat that's dead or alive, or a digit that's zero or one, except that Jack somehow has more than two states to work with. So, Jack, you will have to enlighten us. Yes, okay, happy to be here. Thanks very much for having me here today, Yasmin and Lachlan. So let's go straight to business, so QDITS. As Yasmin said, um, it's really like having a cat that's both dead and alive, except that for QDITS, you have the whole zoo. (laughs) You could have a chick that's dead or alive, an elephant that's dead or alive. It's just having that opportunity to work with more quantum states that will be beneficial if you want to increase um, information capacity in quantum communication, if you want to increase the robustness in quantum computation, and just in general have a quantum system that will be more robust to to noise. So how is it different to have a Schrodinger's cat and a Schrodinger's elephant rather than just two Schrodinger's cats in two boxes next to each other? The obvious benefit is if you're going to send quantum information, why limit yourself to zero and one? when you could have 0, 1, 2, 3, etc. I mean, the way I think about it is if you think of life as in biology life, how did nature stumble upon a four-letter alphabet? Like, do we know that our genes are written in four bases? G-A-T-C. And from that four-letter alphabet, you get the diversity of life that you have now. And for me, my interest in QDITS, in going to those higher levels, is that it could open a more interesting way of encoding quantum information that could enable future technologies. Like, for example, in the current era of quantum computation, where we are creating these chips, where we put superconducting systems, we are putting ions... I think it's all very exciting. But the one lesson that I take from it is that whatever you could put on that chip is limited, right? There is a limit to how many qubits, how many systems you could pack in that system. So if there is a limit, then why don't we become economical? Because nature does give us not just a qubit. We don't have just zero and one. 
in our classical computation, we have the bit, we have zero and one. And I think that's also, in a way, why we talk about qubits. But um, natural quantum systems are not limited to these two levels. So I imagine quantum technology that would really use all the levels that nature gave us, like, you know, really use the playground that we have, and maybe that could help us improve uh, things a bit more. That's fascinating, Jack. So you've already kind of hinted to, uh, you know, the, the levels of an atom that are most generally used as the physical realization of a qubit. Yeah. So for the uninitiated, um, we've already said it the word uh, many times, but um, so a qubit is a the quantum version of a bit. And so a classical bit is essentially a zero or a one, which can be two states of an electric switch, like a light switch. Yeah. And the quantum version of that can physically be any system in principle, as long as you can isolate a few states that nature sort of can recognize as being separate states. Yes. In high school physics, we often think about a, an electron that's hopping to the next uh, energy sh shell or the next shell that's further mm -hmm. away from, from the core. So this was all a very long uh, introduction just to ask you, could you elaborate a little bit on those different kind of systems um, from sort of the more abstract part, which I think you work a lot with, which is just kind of abstract spins to then the mm -hmm. more experimental part like atoms and also what, what you're working on, light to give already a spoiler, but yeah. could you give us sort of an overview on that? So what's really interesting in quantum information is that when you talk to quantum information theorists, they write all these, these equations in terms of their kets. So they have zero and one. They do have other kets, like you, you do have quantum information theorists who work with, you know, the many levels. But when you ask them what that means, often the answer you get, well, it is a vector. Like, you know, for, for as long as you have this orthonormal set of modes in your, you know, different basis sets, we can work with that. So it's that level of abstraction. What is exciting for me as an experimentalist is that physics gives me different ways of implementing those abstract things in an experiment. And as Yasmin said, we do have a lot of options for them. Um, one is, of course, ions are possibly the cleanest systems that we have right now. We learn about their different energy levels. We could control them using, you know, clever combination of lasers. We know very well how to manipulate them. So they're really good quantum systems. We do hear a lot in the press these days about the superconducting qubits. Um, so IBM, Google stuff. What I work personally is uh, photons, particles of light. And what I love about photons is that they retain their quantum properties even at room temperature. I think that's a big, a big plus. We have mature technologies for manipulating a photon. Like, you know, just look at how good your camera in your phone is. Um, we do have good technology for, for photons. Um, there are still a lot of challenges, of course, but I think photons is a very good candidate for doing quantum technology. And I think the most important part for the photon, really, is that it is a package 
that has a lot of degrees of freedom that you could play with. You could think of polarization, what is the plane, the electric field is vibrating. You could think about color. There's a lot of ways that you encode information in a photon. Like my personal favorite is, of course, you know, the shape of light. I tend to think of it as, you know, you could buy a laser pointer, you have a bright spot, but you could actually do much more than that. And it's so cool that I could create in my lab <laughs> all the solutions that I could compute <laughs> for the wave equation. Like, I think that's just fascinating. And then to be able to really measure that in single photons, I think is really, you know, fascinating. Because from here, I could build my alphabet of quantum information. And if I could, you know, skip... <laughs> the challenges I could, you know, do, do something really great with it in the future for communication, computation, for sensing. Like, it's really a very, really flexible quantum system, the photon. Okay, Jackie, that's fascinating. Um, the theme of this week's episode is ignorance, because we needed a little bit of a provocative uh, clickbait title. Uh, you know, it's always good for a podcast episode to spice things up. Um, so can you tell me, what does it mean for you? Because I think you have a quite interesting definition of ignorance that may be different from uh, what it means to people outside of quantum physics. So ignorance in quantum physics is really fascinating because there are cases where guessing randomly is the best that you can do. For example, when you ha I talked about these EPR particles, we send them far apart we do measurement on just one of them. And when you try to guess what the outcome of the spin, for example, would be, what's the best strategy? And it turns out the best strategy is to guess randomly. <laughs> so the very definition of ignorance in the normal world, which is, you know, if you have a multiple choice question, just guess randomly. That's really ignorant of you to do that. And then you go to quantum physics where you've got these entangled particles and I'm trying to guess the outcome of the measurement for this one part of that system. And the best that I could do is to guess randomly. Like that really is the best strategy. And like when I look at it that way, I was like, ooh, that's crazy, isn't it? So somehow you've got this guessing randomly that's you think of it as the most ignorant thing you could do, and then suddenly it's the best strategy. In a way, quantum physics is like that. Like I like quantum physics because it really it forces you to look at things so differently. <laughs> we we are finding out what is the resource in quantum physics. What is it that leads to the advantage that you get for quantum computing, quantum communication? And there are many candidates, like entanglement is one of them, but you know, you have complementarity as well, like you, you hear of other things. And one thing that I find like a common theme to them is that there is this uncertainty involved. Like once you leave that definiteness, that determinism that you have in the normal world, when you make room for uncertainty, you make room for ignorance. And somehow that leads to good things. I mean, I don't know, it's almost philosophical. Like, and, and I must say, I only think of this on the weekends. So on my weekdays, <laughs> I, am, I, am, uh, I, I am a quantum engineer. <laughs> what I do.
do. I do find this interplay of these different concepts really quite beautiful. <laughs> it's also quite important as an engineer, though, I think, because the the ignorance, for example, another way to, to think about that word, I think, is that when you're conducting experiments, a very big part of uh, quantum physics, and, and both philosophically and experimentally in almost equal amounts, is this idea of uh, collapse. So your system collapses from a a quantum state, a beautiful, pure quantum state in which uh, you actually, or nature almost, does not know in which state your system is. And therefore, it can be in two states, in two places, etc. at the same time. It can remain entangled. And so when you actually lose that ignorance uh, by doing measurements, uh, you can uh, destroy your system in that way because you're suddenly going to be working with a classical object after you had your precious quantum state uh, and suddenly you have a classical object in your yes. hands. Yeah. So can you maybe talk a bit more on how that is for you in the experiments that you're trying to conduct? So I, I would be really honest. I really don't think about collapse when I do the experiments. I just look at it as I have this filter for the state that I want to measure and I have a photon detector. When that gives me a pulse, I knew there was a photon. So it's very pragmatic. Um, if you actually read uh, The Quantum Theory of Light by Rodney Lowden, it has one of my most favorite forewords in any quantum optics book because he really doesn't shy away from the baggage of the photon. He really recognizes it in all its mess. And then at the end, he says, it has a pragmatic definition. When a photon detector clicks, you have a photon. <laughs> and I guess that's what, that's what yeah. I live by in my day-to-day -day work. But yeah, as I've said, when I feel romantic, when it's the weekend, I do think of all these things and it's fun. <laughs> That's really fun. It reminds me this semester I've been teaching some first year physics, classical physics, thermal physics. And if you ask people what is temperature, it's actually a really curly one. And one of the best definitions you can give, although it sounds pathetically flippant at first, is temperature is the property which is measured by a thermometer. <laughs> <laughs> that came to mind. Yeah, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, we we're not running a a clear as thermal podcast, so that'll have to wait for another conversation. But it, it is what many of us do in their lives. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, when you were describing that, Jack, it reminded me a few episodes ago we were talking about coherence with John Bartholomew and the idea of decoherence, where you're you're wonderful quantum state that's holding some quantum information sort of loses that information you become unable to to read it back out that's partly because of this of this ignorance problem right that what's happened is that your system has gone and coupled itself with other photons yeah. or other atoms or other quantum systems in, in its environment that you're not measuring ultra precisely at your ultra cold fridge or whatever it might be um and so it you sort of end up observing a thing which is kind of just like a random guess uh, and so you say oh, well that, that's lost my information but if you could somehow overcome that that obstacle of ignorance here I'm, I'm using ignorance a little bit differently here i suppose but if you could somehow overcome that then you then you 
then you might actually be able to sort of reclaim your quantum information back from the universe itself. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a very hard problem, isn't it? But hopefully, like before your quantum state collapses, you you have you know directed the quantum interference to sort of you know go to the solution that yeah. you wanted. Yeah, it's yeah. it's all very yeah. It's it's a lot of engineering yeah. and thinking really to designing that interference that mm. coherence to stay while you need it <laughs> but even the even the and we've referred to it many times um without really describing it in in lots of detail but the the schrodinger's cat experiment you've got a cat in a box and the cat's in this quantum superposition state it's alive and dead at the same time mm -hmm. that's that's this qubit that's zero and mm -hmm. one at the same time the reason it is is because you haven't opened the box to look in right and that sounds so weird but in in real in real life, that's the way nature works. You can you can have situations where if you have two systems that can emit photons, that can emit light, and then you bounce both paths off a sort of half-silvered mirror that is 50% likely to reflect, so that after the mirror, you've got no idea. If you see a photon, you don't know which emitter, which photon gun produced that photon. Then by engineering that state of ignorance about which emitter fired... Which way information. Yeah, then what you've done is you've actually created a really interesting quantum state that you can go away and have all sorts of fun with and, and do really useful quantum stuff with. Yeah, it's a way of entangling. And it's weird that you could build it by deliberately throwing away that information, making yourself more ignorant is the pathway to the, the resource you need. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really it's a recurring theme. So when I started with Ecos, I was actually working in causality, this idea of indefiniteness in the order that things happen. And even there, we could get some advantage if we didn't know whether A came before B or B came before A. So that indefiniteness <laughs> of order somehow leads to some advantage. So this idea of indefiniteness, which mm. I guess is also, you know, ignorance, mm. somehow it's, it's a recurring theme. <laughs> That actually leads to to another interesting question. You mentioned you know your life before you were part of Equus, and and that's an interesting way to divide one's life into before and after Equus. But um, <laughs> what was your journey into quantum physics? Did you always know that you wanted to be a physicist? What captured your interest? Yeah, I knew I wanted to be a physicist since I was fifteen years old, and it's actually really a funny a funny story. I'll I'll tell you. So so. Yeah. So when I was eight years old, an uncle of mine was doing an engineering degree and he bought the wrong book for a maths course. <laughs> and that book was Problem Solving in Algebra. So he gave that to an eight-year-old me. And I found that really interesting because there you just have English problems like, you know, age problems, work problems, really English words. And then you have the solution right after the problem. And so my introduction to algebra was really not with the actions, not with theorems. It was really a very practical, this is algebra. If I have an English sentence, I could convert that to a mathematical sentence and I could solve it because I know algebra. And that was such a powerful, powerful idea for me that something in the real world could be translated to a mathematical equation and I could solve it. And then I went to a high school which focused on science and we had physics from the first year. And then I realized, oh my goodness, physics is like, there's something in the world and I will describe it and I could predict what would happen. 
because I could describe it. And it was just from then on, I want to be a physicist. And then quantum entered because in my last year, I was hanging out in the uh, physics unit where the physics teachers hang out. And I heard the teacher say he hates quantum physics. Like he was doing it for his master's and I think he was failing it. So he, he said he hates it. So I googled what quantum physics is. And of course, when you Google something like that, you get the meaty articles, you know, all the controversial, perhaps even, you know, misconception-laden articles come up. And so I was reading it and I was, oh my, this is so curious. This is so great. I want to do this. So I wanted to be a quantum physicist since I was 15. Um, but it was hard to get to quantum physics, actually, because I grew up in the Philippines and we didn't really have quantum physics research and when I was applying for positions, for PhD positions, often I would get rejected because I don't have that background, like my the educational system is a bit different. So it was really a bit of a, you know, strategizing to get into the field. And in the end, what worked for me was because I was doing uh, my master's. I was actually working with shaping light but not for quantum, for other things, for microscopy, for trapping particles, all those really classical things. But that the basis of that was this technology of shaping light. So what I did was I looked at, okay, who in the world <laughs> knows how to do this technology and who among them is interested in doing quantum. So from applying to a well-established quantum group, I changed my strategy to, I'll just find someone where we have something in common, hmm. a common knowledge of something, a technology, and a common goal to go to the quantum field. And that really worked out for me. So my PhD supervisor, like Miles Padgett, um, is actually now one of the heads of the quantum hubs in the UK. And like he, he would tell you this, hmm. he wasn't a quantum physicist. When I started my PhD in 2008, he wasn't a quantum physicist. We were not quantum physicists, but I think we are both very proud that in, you know, in the span of you know, a decade or so, we were able to enter the field and really make uh, good progress for what we initially set out to do. That's cool. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah, that's awesome, uh, Jackie. Once you were, I suppose, into uh, academia, really, you know, um, can you maybe tell us about any, the places where you went? Because usually that is a big part of it, of the world that opens up to people. You know, when you're having a lot of courses, you're usually just quite dislocated to your university, your home university. Uh, but then often there's a world that kind of opens up to people when they even get to travel and to talk with so many different people. So do you have anything to share? It has been great for me because it, where I did my PhD, we usually get to go to a, an international conference once a year. Um, and one of my favorite places is Rochester in New York. When I say that to you know, my American friends, my cousins who live in the US, I say, what? Rochester? What? In the world. But I tell them, you know, in Rochester, you could find the Eastman Museum. And there you'll find like the biggest collection of photographs, um, you know, photograph technology from the very beginning. Like you're talking about you know, daguerreotypes, like really the, 
<laughs> from the very beginning of film, you'll find it there. And then there's a, a hidden gem of a bookshop near the hotel where I stayed. And I really got really rare books. Like I, I bought from there um, Discoveries of Galileo. Like his work translated. I, I found a book like What Do Scientists Think About Religion? It's a, it's a really good bookshop. So if you ever go to Rochester, go to the Eastman Museum and find this bookshop, which you know, unfortunately I forgot the name. Amazing. Thank you so much. You know, you really get to go <laughs> yeah. to places that you otherwise wouldn't go, especially yeah. quite often these conferences are, you know, they're not going to be in the middle of the big city. They're usually kind of in like a, a big conference hotel in a suburb where you otherwise like never would go. But then you kind of find, you know, the hidden yeah. gems. Upstate New York. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Jack, maybe we can go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Do you have an academic nightmare? <laughs> this is funny. But because UQ in recent times has had these power outages where the power just goes out in the lab and I have superconducting nanowire detectors in the lab which has to be kept at you know, 2.7 Kelvin, I have a compressor. So sometimes I would really have nightmares <laughs> that everything turned off oh, and man. then I would go to the lab and everything was broken. <laughs> You're already the second person on this podcast with the exact same nightmare because I had the same one that I disclosed in the yeah, first. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> I just... Do we not have like generators or something? I just don't understand. <laughs> no, we don't have. Yes, we, we don't have at UQ. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like it would be worth the investment, but anyway. <laughs> yes, it would. If anyone in UQ is listening to this podcast, it would be worth an investment. <laughs> Well, this is a reasonably indirect way to try and achieve that sort of policy change, but I endorse it. So. <laughs> What what are the ways that it would go wrong if the power did cut out suddenly and without um <laughs> without being expected? They will warm up. Um, so if I were running an experiment, that would already <laughs> mess up the data. Mm. But I think I, I'm more worried about the compressor actually. Well, yeah. I mean, just pointing out to everyone listening, this is one of the fun and bizarre things about being a quantum physicist. On the one hand, you go to a meeting and everyone's talking about Q dits, and then the very next. The very yes. next hour of the same day, you become a, a high vacuum engineer yep. trying to yes. troubleshoot technology that's existed for hundreds of years. And you're, you're just trying to, you know, is the pressure getting down right? Is there, yeah. is there something that's giving off gas inside my vacuum system? And and then the next the next hour, you've, you're probably trying to be some sort of electrical engineer, trying to solder some wires to make the power supply run at the right voltage. It, it literally is that diverse. Yeah, it is. And I, it's, I, of, I often tell this to my students and to myself, actually. When we look at science, we think it's glamorous. You know, you publish all those papers, you network in those conferences in really nice venues. But the work day to day is really problem solving wherever that problem arises. Mm. And when you do an experiment, there's a lot of things that could go wrong. And you really have to maintain that patience and persistence to get through those little problems while keeping your big picture, yeah. like going from that <laughs> level of abstract to really the mundane yeah. details of everyday. <laughs> yeah. It, you, you learn from those things. Um, it's part of the fun. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
So, Jack, there's a question we've asked everyone. Because it's a podcast, what is the sound of quantum for you? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Often I would find myself when I'm in deep thought and then I realize something that quantum has you know, something to do with, I'll just go... <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. <laughs> because because quantum physics is like that mm. it's like you've grown up building this bank of insights mm. of the natural world and then you go to quantum physics and then oh it's the other way around there <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah that's it yeah that's the sound of quantum <laughs> that, it's a very accurate and i think widely experienced sound of quantum yeah thanks very yeah. much for that yeah <laughs> And and thank you, Jack, so much for coming on this episode um, of Clear as Quantum. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. I had fun. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Hopefully, we've been able to make that, or some of it, as clear as quantum. We'd love to hear your quantum questions. Send them to engage at equus.org. That's E-N-G-A-G-E at E-Q-U-S dot org. And we'll try to answer them in future episodes. To learn more about quantum physics, explained by experts in the field, Subscribe to Clearest Quantum wherever you get your podcasts and share it with your friends. Join us for another episode next week. And until then, remember to keep your mind open, but not so open that your brains fall out. Mm-hmm.